0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, it's been years in limbo, right, depending on who has been in the White House. But it does look like this morning that President-elect Joe Biden will formally cancel the Keystone XL pipeline expansion when he takes office later this week. What is the reaction to all of this in Ottawa? Joining us now is Global News National Parliamentary Correspondent Mike Lecdor. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. So tell me, this news broke uh, yesterday. So what has Canada's reaction been to this so far?
2: Well, the first out of the gate has been the Canadian ambassador to the U.S., Kristen Hillman, uh, basically trying to explain to people that this is not the same project as the one that was rejected by President Barack Obama back in 2015, uh, saying that it's not only changed significantly, but oil sand production has also changed significantly. Per barrel, oil sands global house, uh, sorry, greenhouse gas emissions have dropped by 31% since the year 2000. Um, And saying, quote, my team and I will continue to work with Alberta and the industry to make sure American lawmakers and stakeholders understand the facts about energy production in Canada. There's other statements going on as well, and you consider that you have, uh, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, saying, uh, that they renew their call, um, on the incoming administration to show respect for Canada and the United States' most important trading partner, um, as Canada's, uh, sorry, as the U.S.'s most important trading partner and strategic ally, uh, saying that, look, it's going to kill jobs on both sides of the border, weaken cross-border ties, uh, and, Kenny believes it'll undermine U.S. national security by making um, the country, the U.S., more dependent on oil imports from other OPEC countries. Uh, and Kenny adds that Alberta and TC Energy will use the legal avenues to try and protect the project. Now, TC Energy, interestingly enough, to me, didn't respond directly to the Biden decision. Instead, puts out a statement extolling the virtues of this pipeline, um, saying that it would be the first pipeline to be powered by fully renewable energy and it'll have the lowest environmental impact of an oil pipeline in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So a lot of people trying to make the case uh, and, and a lot of discussions on this side of the border. Mm-hmm. The problem here is is, you know, we're fighting against time on yeah. the Canadian side of the border. Uh, if he's going to do this on d- day one, President-elect Biden, um, then we've only got about 48 to, you know, 48 hours to three days to get this done. Uh, and, Consider this as well. This should not be a shock to Canada when you look at the fact that this was part of his campaign. It was a key plank of his environmental and climate change uh, program, which includes getting, uh, bringing the U.S. back into the U.S. Uh, into the uh, sorry Paris Climate Accord, um, and he's going to do that as well on day one. So th- this is something that Canada had to know was coming, uh, but as to whether or not they would be shocked about it, I-, I think part of the shock is that it's happening on day one. Uh, because yeah. in that congratulatory call between the Prime Minister and, uh, uh, the President-elect, uh, we were hearing that Keystone XL was discussed. Um, but whether or not it was uh, a warning that this was coming or a, an agreement to further talk, uh, further talk about it down the road so that Canada had a chance to try and convince them, uh, that's unclear. But either way, it looks like it could be happening on Wednesday.
1: Is there any chance at this point then, Mike, that the Canadian government could stop this from happening?
2: I mean, I, look, because we had the NFL playoffs yesterday, I'm going to go ahead and use an analogy and saying this is going to take a Hail Mary. Um, if it's out there like this, um, these types of things are not hidden from journalists. They're usually shared with journalists. Um, and I don't think that this would be a trial balloon, but certainly um, this is something that he campaigned on. And we all know politicians, they want to start ticking off boxes on campaign promises as soon as they can. And if you can do it by executive order on day one, uh, well, then, you know, he will. Now, we know uh, U.S. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden's key focus is uh fighting the the, the pandemic, uh COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so I don't know whether or not, you know, this will sort of wait till day two. But certainly for right now, it looks like it's on day one uh, and it'll have to take a lot of lobbying and a lot of phone calls from this side of the border to that side of the border to stop this train from uh, from taking off.
1: All right. We'll see what happens. Mike, thank you. Thank you. Michael Couture, our global national parliamentary correspondent, uh, talking this morning about the news that it looks like President-elect Joe Biden could formally cancel the Keystone XL pipeline expansion when he takes office this week. That obviously will have uh, some pretty big repercussions right here in Canada, uh, particularly in Alberta, where they are already very concerned.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So there's some concern out there about some of the comments that Premier John Horgan made last week in regards to closing provincial borders, wanting to limit interprovincial travel. We've heard mayors on both sides. I mean, on this show, we spoke with the mayor of Revelstoke on Friday, where he said he would welcome this because he's very concerned about what he sees happening in his community. But then you talk to people in the tourism industry overall, and they say they are not happy about this idea. So joining us now with more on that is Vivek Sharma from the Tour- Tourism Industry Association of B.C. Vivek, thank you for being back with us.
3: You're very welcome and thank you for having me.
1: What did you think when you heard Premier John Horgan talking about limiting interprovincial travel?
3: Well, you know, first I want to say that from an industry standpoint, we are in no way promoting or encouraging non-essential travel within B.C. or from other provinces. That's not what we are saying. And the PM was not talking about limiting. He was talking about an outright ban. And from a long-term perspective, uh, you know, a ban is going to be really very difficult, uh, as we should not be judging people as to why they're visiting B.C. You know, we're going to be pitting communities in one province against other. And the long-term uh, perception of B.C. as a welcoming uh, community for our visitor economy is going to take a big hit. Right, and and that's all that we are trying to you know advocate for.
1: But clearly, some communities are struggling with this, right? Like the mayor of Revelstoke told us, he's got people coming from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. They're going snowmobiling. They're here on vacation, and and he's worried about his community.
3: Uh, yeah, and I'm not going to comment on on the mayor's position. What I can say is that multiple tourism operators across BC. And I would, you know, say all of the tourism operators across BC have, uh, you know, taken some extreme measures in, in protecting the health and wellness of their guests and communities. Uh, We've heard stories of how some tourism operators have actually cancelled reservations for people who are from uh, outside the province um, to comply with uh, with the advisory, which, you know, as you would know, is an advisory; it's not a director. So the industry is doing all it can all we are saying is that there are other ways to tackle this uh, apart from an outright ban.
1: Okay. What are those other ways to tackle it then? Cause it seems like people aren't listening.
3: Well, you know, so we need to understand that travel is not the cause, you know, it is people's behavior. That's the biggest challenge over here is the behavior that people have. Um, and h- how do we manage that behavior? You know, we, we, We would love to work with the government in in better messaging so that whoever is visiting our our province for whatever reason, not just tourism, but people, you you know that people come to our province because some people work here and live in other provinces while some people live here and work in other provinces. How do we manage those? Um, Where do we stand as a province in uh, rapid testing? How can that rollout be uh, you know, scaled up? Uh, where is our long-term strategy on the vaccination? Those are the long-term solutions that we need to look at and we would love to discuss, along with what is our communication plan for the restart of the tourism economy?
1: Right. But you said, you know, you talked about human behavior. I mean, people, it is human behavior that people are not paying attention to the rules then. And some of them are still coming here. It sounds like the tourism industry would like us to say, oh, well, it's just a few people. So that's okay."
3: No, like I said, you know, we as an industry are not promoting or encouraging non-essential travel. That's that's what our position is. And we've consistently been on board with that since the start of the pandemic yeah. but a ban is a very strong uh, statement um and as you probably are aware that a ban also kind of uh, you know constitutionally we are not sure as to how that will work because the ability to travel across provinces for canadians is one of our most cherished rights uh and the, the long-term effect that's what our bigger worry is the long-term effect of a ban on the uh on, on, the, uh, on the BC tourism industry and, and how it is perceived uh, is, is just going to be devastating.
1: But what about, um, you know, locally people traveling? Like within BC, there's a lot of people who decided that they were going to vacation in their own backyard this past summer. Didn't that do a lot to support the industry?
3: It did, absolutely. And any any travel, you know, whether it is within the community or a little bit outside the community, it supports the industry. But we know that, you know, a a $20 billion industry, which tourism was in 2019, did not just survive on local travel. There is just not enough local travel within BC uh, or even nationally to support that industry. And, uh, you know, any of those kind of things like bands and everything, it just further uh, pushes us towards the edge if we are not there already.
1: Right. But what then, Vivek, what is a community like Revelstoke supposed to do then when people aren't listening and they feel like their residents are being put at risk?
3: I I will say the same thing again. You know, I mean, we we would with the government i think the key is messaging and influencing people's behavior um and and as hard as it sounds you know we we've, we've got this uh, behavior of traveling in a certain way through centuries of traveling behaviors you know so i understand it's not easy to influence and change but we have shown through the pandemic that it can be done uh, safely. You know, we saw it in the summer, we saw it in the fall, that it can be done safely. So we just have to ramp up those, um, those messaging and, and those protocols and awareness around, you know, the protocols which various tourism industry operators have implemented in their respective businesses.
1: Right. Doesn't it feel though, like, okay, we get the message here in BC, that's fine. But they're not getting the message in other provinces about not coming to BC. Clearly, what did get their attention was the premier saying this last week.
3: You know, I I don't want to be discriminating about, you know, people in other provinces getting it or not getting it. And and when we talk about a ban, that's, you know, one of our bigger worry is that we are pitting provinces against one another. And as as an industry which is based on the movement of people, you know, from one place to the other, uh, that's something that we just we are extremely worried about. And, 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 and it kind of uh, leads to, uh, like I said, you know, very longstanding uh, views being formed against British Columbia as a welcoming place for our travel industry.
1: Mm. All right. Well, Vivek, thank you very much for your time.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Appreciate that. That's Vivek Sharma. He's chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. They don't like hearing Premier John Horgan talk about banning people from other provinces. But, you know, I did notice something really interesting last week with this whole discussion. And that is when the mayor of Calgary was asked about Premier John Horgan's comments, it was news to him, apparently, that BC didn't want people from other provinces to come and visit them. And he said, oh, that was the first time I've heard that. And I go, okay, I guess I'll have to take a look at that. And I thought, well, wait a minute, we talk about it a lot here in BC. So are you telling me that other provinces, people there think it's okay to travel and, and cross provincial borders and do all that when we have been told otherwise? So whatever the messaging is, we may be getting it in BC, not necessarily the case in other provinces. So how do you deal with that situation?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, new information published by Global News this morning shows a trail of money and guns connected to the Nova Scotia killer Gabriel Wortman. So let's talk to Global News Halifax reporter Sarah Ritchie about what she has uncovered here. And don't forget, she's also the host of the podcast 13 Hours. That is a series that takes a closer look at the events that unfolded during that killing spree. Sarah's with us now. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So what have you learned where did he get his money and his um, his guns from?
4: Well, we've been trying to ask this question for months, of course. And and one of the things that's come up for us over the course of the last several months is this connection to a man named Tom Evans. So Tom was a lawyer, a disgraced lawyer in New Brunswick. Uh, He worked in, in that field in the 1980s in New Brunswick. And he was a close friend of the Wartman family. He, we think, actually met Gabriel Wartman through his uncle Glenn, um, he became close friends with Gabriel Wartman when he was about 15 years old, and Evans was about 19 years older than that. So it's kind of an odd friendship. And this was something that we heard about through friends of the family and people we've been speaking to that, you know, you might want to look into this relationship with Tom Evans. And they had a a long business relationship as well. So what we've done over the course of the last several months, we've poured over hundreds of pages of corporate and property records and court documents to try to piece together exactly what this relationship was about. And can we determine whether any of the guns or any of the money that Gabriel Wartman had uh, came from Tom? And the answer is yes. One of the guns that he used in the shooting spree actually was bequeathed to him as part of Tom's uh, estate. Tom passed away in 2009, left everything to Gabriel Wartman, who he called his dear friend in his will. And one of the things that he left to Gabriel Wortman was this rifle, this semi-automatic rifle, which was used in the killing spree back in April.
1: Okay, so that's interesting then. So that solves some of the um, mystery, I guess.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so... Wortman's relationship with Tom Evans is a link to more of the weapons. We can see this through court documents that police have recently filed and, and that media outlets, including Global News, have been fighting to unseal since May. Um, in a recent release of those documents, what we see is that a man who was a friend of Tom Evans met Gabriel Wortman about 25 or 30 years ago. This man, we don't know his name, but he lives in Holton, Maine, which is just across the border from uh, New Brunswick. And this is a place where Gabriel Wortman frequently traveled across the border um, 15 times in the two years before the shooting spree. He went across the border there. This man told the FBI and the RCMP that he actually had two handguns go missing from his home. One of those handguns was used in the shooting spree. He said Gabriel Wortman took it and said he needed it for protection. He also told them that he hmm. gave Gabriel Wortman another pistol as a sign of gratitude for doing some work around his house. And then he told them a story about how uh, when Wortman was at his home, about a year before the killing spree took place, that he uh, purchased through a, a gun show in what was called in these documents, a quick and dirty deal, he purchased a carbine, uh, which was also used in the killing spree. And so so that's why we say there's a connection between Tom Evans and this relationship. Right. It's, it's a mutual friend of theirs from whom he got two of the other guns.
1: And in your story this morning, Sarah, that people can read at globalnews.ca, you really dive into the background of Tom Evans what did you learn about him and how did you learn all that
4: well he's he's quite a character you know it was a it was a difficult thing to try to piece together when you know you're talking about two people who are both uh dead and have you know in and Evans case has been dead for more than a decade but we started calling people who practice law in New Brunswick. We started pulling court records, corporate records, property records, trying to piece together the connection. So we knew these two guys were connected through a company called Northumberland Investments. And we didn't really know what it was. Tom Evans actually founded this company in 1984. And then through the corporate records, we could see that Gabriel Wortman seems to take control of it in the mid 1990s, but we couldn't really figure out what happened there. There were some media reports saying that maybe Tom Evans had left this company and some properties to Gabriel Wortman when he died. Um, But according to what we've found uh, through all of these court records, what actually happened, according to Gabriel Wortman at least, is that Tom founded the company. Uh, with another person, Wartman then bought the company from that other person, and Tom was no longer involved by the 90s. Um, it ended up owning two apartment buildings, one of which it owned when Tom bought it, and then the second one that Wartman purchased. He ended up selling those two buildings after Tom died. Um, because he told the court, well, I didn't have anybody who could take care of them. Tom Evans had been taking care of these buildings for me, uh, sold the two buildings and ended up with more than $230,000. So we started calling people too and asking them, you know, do you remember Tom Evans? And he was very memorable. You know, he only practiced law for less than a decade before his own criminal behavior actually, uh, resulted in his career ending. And, Yet people that we spoke to remembered him really well. They remembered things about him. We were able to find court records that kind of piece together some of the story of Tom Evans, as well as speaking to friends right. of his. And, it, yeah, it's a complicated story. It's one that I encourage people to read because it's, it's something that I think will lend a little bit of insight into what happened in April, but it's also just really important to understanding, you know, how— how all of this could have
1: occurred. Sarah, we will definitely check that out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Now, there's a lot of marine traffic in the waters around Vancouver Island. We know that, right? But it's always posed a serious threat to the marine mammals that live in and migrate through that area. So what could be done about that? Well, there's some exciting news as the Canadian Coast Guard is launching something called the Marine Mammal Desk in Sydney. We're going to learn more about it now with Scott Rear, who's the Regional Program Specialist in Marine Communications and Traffic Services for the Canadian Coast Guard. Scott, thank you for being here this morning.
5: Thank you for having me, Simi.
1: So what is this Marine Mammal Desk?
5: So the Marine Mammal Desk is a desk that's staffed 24-7, 365 days a year by a Marine Mammal Desk officer. And this officer uses various types of technology such as radar, the automated identification system, which is like transponders for aircraft, but of course on commercial vessels. And they take that information along with sightings and observation reports they get from other agencies such as Coast Guard aircraft that are flying over, Transport Canada aircraft, um, vessels on the water, such as Coast Guard vessels. We use lighthouses, commercial vessels themselves. They take all this information, they compile it, and they try to get a good picture of where the whales are, where commercial traffic is. And then they push that information out through a system called the Whale Reporting and Alert System. And that lets commercial traffic in the area know where
1: the whales are
5: and how to better plan their routes to try to avoid them.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. So this is something we've never done before.
5: It's, there, a lot of the information has kind of been out there piecemeal for a number of years now, but the Marine Mammal Desk was kind of seen as an opportunity to be a collecting house for that information and figure out some more efficiencies or better efficiencies on how to get that information out there.
1: Okay, so theoretically then, if uh, a ship sees, say, a pod of whales, that information would be relayed, and then what would the reaction be then? You would hope that other ships would avoid that or steer clear or give a wide berth?
5: That's kind of how it works, yeah. So we, the desk itself would get a report of a sighting of whales in a certain area. They would take that information and they would first push it out through some secure communications networks, and that would go to several enforcement agencies, again, such as DFO Conservation and Protection, RCMP, Parks Canada. If they had any vessels in the area, then those vessels could go to that area of the sighting and act in any way they see fit. The information then gets sent out in what we call a sightings and observation report. And that's basically an email that goes out to a bit wider base of agencies. The information then, again, like I said, is entered into the BC cetacean sighting network. That gets pushed out through the whale reporting and alert system. And then that gets put in the hands of the mariners that need it.
1: Okay, so what brought this about then, Scott? Why, why is this a good time to launch something like this?
5: Well, I think it's a good time because, I mean, we're seeing more and more pressure, like you said, put on marine mammals, um, not just the southern resident killer whales, but all marine mammals. Um, it ties in nicely with the mandate of Marine Communications and Traffic Services. Part of our mandate is to make sure that we protect the marine environment. And I think there was just a lot of interest in a lot of government departments to start working together and get this information out there.
1: And was this something that, like, were there close calls, do you think, in years past? Is this something that has been needed?
5: I think that we've all been made aware that there have been vessel strikes in the past. Um, And I think that we're seeing a bit of an increased shipping, as we know, um, as the Port of Vancouver does get a bit busier. So I think the timing was just right.
1: Okay. So then is, is there anything else like this in the world? Like, do other jurisdictions do this too?
5: Not as far as I know. I mean, we do some work with the North Atlantic right whales on the East Coast, but there isn't a specific desk set aside to do this type of work, and they aren't using the sensors in the same way.
1: Interesting. So then is is the goal here to protect killer whales and orcas? Is that what the main idea is?
5: It started out, I think, a lot with the... Interim order for the protection of the son of the resident killer whale. So that's where the focus on this coast is right now. We're seeing a net benefit to all cetaceans out there. So the desk itself does take reports on all marine mammals, all types of cetaceans.
1: Okay, so then do do ships have to do anything special, Scott, then to make sure they get this information?
5: Um, So commercial vessels are signing up for the whale reporting and alerting system that is made available to them. We are looking at using some of our existing technology, the automated information system, and we're looking at ways to enhance using that. One of the options we're looking at is pushing a, what's called a safety-related message. So then that message we would either be able to push to either an individual ship or a group of vessels in a certain area and get that information to them to there a bit easier.
1: Okay, interesting. So you could target them and say, hey, we notice you're in this area. Watch out for this. That's correct. Wow, fascinating stuff. Scott, thank you so much.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Appreciate that. Scott Rear is a regional program specialist with Marine Communications and Traffic Services at the Canadian Coast Guard. They are undertaking something pretty big using all of their tracking equipment and communication services that they have for everything, you know, off the West Coast to track essentially marine mammal Traffic, And when they see, you know, a pod of whales or whatever the case may be, they can put that information then out to all of the ships who are in that vicinity to say, hey, watch out for this, uh, whatever the case may be, steer clear if it's a pod of whales, whatever it is, but essentially giving the marine mammals more of a wide berth through that area. And as I said, they don't know of any other jurisdiction that is tackling it quite the same way. It's kind of cool. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Bit of a bombshell for Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe over the weekend. We learned that the Keystone XL pipeline expansion will most likely be cancelled when President-elect Joe Biden takes office on Wednesday. In fact, reports are he will cancel it his first day in office. And there's obviously a lot of concern about this. There's a lot of lobbying going on right now. The Canadian government is scrambling too. Uh, so, what do other parties think about this? Well, the Green Party thinks it's a step in the right direction. And joining us now to talk more about that is Enemy Paul, the Green Party leader of Canada. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Demi. So, what did you think when you heard the news then that this was likely going to happen this week?
6: Well, this is a
1: promise that uh, President-elect
6: Joe Biden ran on. And so it's really, you know, it's comforting to know that uh, um, he's planning to keep his promise. Um, you know, this is, this is something that, uh, that we expected him to do. And so I don't think that it should come as, as, um, as any surprise to our government that um, President-elect Biden is planning to, uh, to cancel that project.
1: Are you concerned at all about the impact that would have, though, on places like Alberta and Saskatchewan?
6: The people of Alberta and Saskatchewan are absolutely our first and, and foremost concern and so uh, what needs to happen now and what should have been happening for some time is uh, that the uh, the government both provincial and federally should be thinking about you know what what will replace this what will replace this project to make sure that uh, that the workers and families that have been relying on that project uh, have some other option. because we've known for some time that uh, that the uh, um, president-elect Biden and the Democrats, didn't support that project, that they intended to cancel it uh, if they won. And so I certainly hope that there is a contingency plan. In the case of the Green Party, we've been talking about uh, a green recovery uh, using the stimulus money, the hundreds of billions we'll be spending uh, to make sure that Alberta and Saskatchewan, in particular, uh, diversify their economies and invest in areas that uh, are you know, produce more jobs and have a more stable future.
1: What do you say to the people who argue that, listen, this is not the same project that you know President Obama turned down five years ago, that they have made strides to make it more green-friendly, that they have improved the situation?
6: The you know the the facts and not you know just the facts of the situation are that we cannot continue to um, extract oil from the ground if we are going to uh, and to bring new Um, new pipelines online if we are going to do our fair share to tackle the climate emergency. This is just a fact. And it's why other countries uh, that are also quite um, dependent upon fossil fuels and the fossil fuel sector are moving so aggressively to diversify their economies. Denmark, for instance, has stated very clearly that they're not going to do any more oil and gas exploration off of their coast. So it is possible um, to uh, have an economy and jobs that are prosperous, but it is not possible to continue to bring new pipelines online and to protect the climate.
1: Now, word is that the Canadian government is going to be you know, lobbying to try to prevent this from happening. What would be your message to the government?
6: Well, my message first to President elect Biden is to hold your nerve, uh, hold your nerve, and to know that there are people that uh, applaud you for your leadership. Uh, and to say to our government that you are not demonstrating leadership. I would say that if the first thing that they choose to do is to speak with President-elect Biden about um, reversing his decision on Keystone as opposed to speaking with him about how North America can be the leader on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, on creating a carbon border, on creating a green recovery. Uh, then it's a wasted opportunity I do not think that he's going to change his mind nor should he and so let's talk about the things that we can constructively do together to create the green jobs of the future to make sure that our businesses are competitive um, that our communities are secure and that we're tackling the climate emergency
1: do you think that's a message they're ready to hear though in Alberta and Saskatchewan
6: the people of Alberta and Saskatchewan are definitely ready to hear that. There's been a lot of polling done, even during the pandemic, about views uh, on the climate and how ambitious people uh, in different parts of our country want us to be on the climate. And people in Alberta and Saskatchewan have said first very clearly and with a high, you know, high percentage of um, of, uh, of residents, they have said first that they want Canada to be ambitious on the climate. Uh, and second, that they don't believe that there is any competition or contradiction between having a green economy and being ambitious on the climate and the, and the economy in general and the future of their jobs. So if our political leaders are listening to the people and not to the corporations, then they know that they have the mandate to be ambitious and to move towards a green recovery.
1: All right. Well, Thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope you invite me back soon. Sure will. That's Annamie Paul, the Green Party of Canada leader, responding to the news about the incoming Biden administration in the United States preparing to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline permit. And the word is that they are going to do that on the first day they have in office, which would be Wednesday. Now, this kind of just came out in the last 24 hours, and you can bet that the Canadian government is scrambling to deal with this. Um, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney already saying, very unhappy about this, expects the Canadian government to lobby hard to try to make sure that doesn't happen. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe also on board with that. So we'll see what happens, but clearly not the footing that many people wanted to get off on with the incoming Biden administration. People thought, oh, this relationship is going to get better. No, that's the thing we've always forgotten about. Is it Canada and the United States? We have a very close relationship. It is not always smooth sailing. You know, just look at softwood lumber. There's always something uh, that the two sides don't agree on. This looks like it's going to be the latest one of those.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Incredibly heightened tensions right now in the U.S. Capitol, and we can see that with an evacuation alert that was just issued a few minutes ago. Joining us now for what's more on what's happening there is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, what's going on? Good morning, Simi. Uh, so, uh,
7: I would say, you know, 20-ish minutes ago, there, we heard the, uh, evacuation bells go off across the street from us at the U.S. Capitol, uh, with an alert that came out that said that there was an external security threat. Uh, the, we should point out that the inauguration rehearsals are actively, or at least were actively underway, uh, when this, uh, warning sign came out. Uh, we could see the National Guard start to run, uh, and put themselves in position. We know the media that was down on the U.S. Capitol has been escorted out of a tent. They brought, uh, been brought into a more secure space and anyone who was kind of in participation of the inauguration rehearsal has also been evacuated. Uh, there's been a note that came out from U.S. Capitol Police saying an external security threat was located uh, under the bridge for I-295, which is the interstate just on the south side of the uh, U.S. Capitol, uh, and people are being told to stay away from buildings, uh, exterior windows, and doors. We do know that there was a fire that was situated just around the interstate south of the U.S. Capitol. That could be part of the reason uh, Mm -hmm. that this was put in place. But again, because tensions are so high right now, uh, even if this isn't related to a direct security threat, they are doing everything they can to ensure that they are uh, kind of practicing best procedures.
1: Right. And we know even the inauguration on Monday or Wednesday is not going to be anything like what we've seen in, in past years, is it? No,
7: and that is because, uh, there are so many law enforcement personnel members, uh, in D.C. right now. 25,000 plus national security, uh, uh, rather National Guard troops. Uh, we have layers of Secret Service and D.C. police and police linked to the Department of Justice that are all trying to keep a barrier around the Capitol while at the same time keeping a barrier around the barrier. Uh, and these kind of heightened, uh, security activities around the Capitol are what's leading to kind of a heightened security feeling for the rest of the district. And when you have a situation that takes place like this in and around the Capitol grounds. Again, even if it may not be directly linked to it, uh, this is why we kind of get these heightened measures put in place.
1: All right, Reggie, thank you for the quick update. Thanks. Appreciate that. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, an alert having just gone off about 20 minutes ago at the US Capitol building. Uh, they called off the inauguration rehearsal that they were doing on the west front side of that building. And there was concerns about a security risk, potentially, it could be a fire, but they're essentially getting everybody to a safe place right now, just out of an abundance of caution. And I think what this really shows, though, is how incredibly tense things are in in the U.S. Capitol this week that even the slightest thing can cause a situation like this to happen, right? Where everything gets shut down and an alert goes out. And that's going to be continuing all this week. And we will have complete coverage, of course, of the inauguration on Wednesday. Wednesday morning, as a matter of fact, right here on the show. But we're going to talk more about what happened two weeks ago and the impact that that has had. Uh, We're learning more and more about the people who have been arrested. Dozens of people that have now been arrested by the FBI. And a lot of them are being turned in by friends and loved ones who had reached the end of their rope in dealing with some of these relatives and friends. So we wanted to talk to somebody about that. So joining us is a Chapman University associate professor who has studied extremism for decades. He wrote a fascinating piece about this. Uh, and It was in the Washington Post over the weekend, uh, learning about him as well. Peter Simi joins us now. Peter, thanks for being here.
8: Yeah. No, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, now, this is a fascinating look that you did at sort of the relatives and the friends who are saying, listen, I recognize that person. What do you think got them to that point?
8: Well, I, I think it probably varies quite a bit from uh, person to person, case to case. Um, but I, I think for most, um, you know, to, to um, report a, a friend or loved one to authorities, um, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And uh, there, you know, has to be a substantial, I think, amount of concern and worry about the safety of, of the person and, and others for for folks to, you know, call the FBI or, or uh, law enforcement um, in a situation like this. Of course, the government, after, you know, the uh, insurrection occurred, was asking for assistance and help in identifying the perpetrators. Uh, so that that request was was going out. And, and uh, some some folks responded and quite a few.
1: How do you think we we got to this point essentially where you there's an awful lot of people who clearly believed that what they were doing was the right thing to do, and that the you know the president was on their side? How did they get to that point?
8: Well, it certainly didn't happen overnight. This has been um you know, something that's kind of been building and, you know, uh, a slow burn. It's been, um, you know, it, you know, uh, something we've seen in terms of a lot of chatter uh, in in terms of just uh, recent weeks. Uh, so it was very, you know, the, the incident in many ways was very predictable, both short and long term, uh, at least since uh, Obama's election in 2008. Uh, right wing extremism has been resurging. And we've seen a growth in uh, anti-government uh, militia-type groups, so-called patriot groups, just uh, to, you know, to kind of mention what you're, you're saying, that they see themselves as, as kind of patriots. We've seen a growth in white supremacist-type groups. Uh, and a whole host of even newer type folks like QAnon more recently. So you've got this whole kind of constellation, this universe of right wing extremism that's been building. A lot of it is uh, through social media and digital landscapes more broadly, where, you know, these kind of conspiracy theories are widely circulated. And then, you know, with the 16 election, uh, the campaign of Donald Trump and uh, his, his administration over the last four years has been, you know, fuel to the fire in terms of really emboldening this and giving uh, it the most um, significant platform, arguably, in the world.
1: Right. Some of those conspiracy theories that have only been around for a couple of years, what allowed them, do Mm -hmm. you think, to get traction so quickly and spread so widely, so fast?
8: We have such a fragmented... Landscape in terms of information, and and unfortunately, more and more misinformation or disinformation, and people you know, the, the, you know, the whole, the old days of there being three major news networks for the, for the nightly news with, um you know, kind of three very familiar uh, broadcasters. I mean, obviously that's long gone and, and now people get their information from disparate sources. And there's, there's a huge amount of, of misinformation and, and, um, uh, this is just widely circulating through these kind of digital networks, and so um, especially those who really seek to manipulate and take advantage of that landscape, it's, it's very easy, and it happens through mainstream outlets in terms of these platforms like Facebook and Twitter, where information circulates, much of it um, erroneous. But also, there's a you know substantial number of more alternative platforms now where where people gather and, and circulate this kind of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, platforms like Telegram, uh, Parler, which was shut down after the insurrection on the sixth. So it, it's just an enormous uh, field uh, uh, where where these kind of conspiracy theories can really take hold.
1: Now you've been studying this for more than twenty years, and you you pointed out that you know this kind of far right extremism. This is not a small fringe thing. Is it deeper and wider? Do you think it's been underestimated?
8: Oh, absolutely. Uh, in, in the U.S., we've done a great job of ignoring and minimizing this problem. It, it's been our favorite kind of go-to response to this issue. It's kind of a denial game. And it you know has a lot to do with how our country was founded and, and developed um, over the last several uh, centuries. And so... Um, you know, it's something that's deeply ingrained, and it's something uh, for, for the U.S. that is hard to, to really address in an honest way. It's much easier for us to point to external threats. And so, you know, after 9-11, um, you know, uh, Islamic extremism became synonymous with terrorism and uh, despite the fact that, that right wing extremism continued to pose a threat of course we'd had the Oklahoma City bombing just a few right. years prior to 911 largest domestic uh, uh terrorism act in our country's history 168 uh dead including uh children and yet that that really just fell off the radar screen quite quickly uh despite the fact that even after the Oklahoma City bombing we experienced another major uh terror attack at, at our uh summer olympics in in Atlanta that was committed by a right-wing extremist who who bombed several other locations as well. So, you know, we've just had so much uh, opportunity to really take this seriously and respond to it and we failed time and time again.
1: And do you think is, is now the opportunity where it's taken seriously?
8: It, it looks that way. My, my fear is that the first chance we get, again, because it's our default, um, you know, and I, I think even in, in some of what I hear, people kind of trying to minimize what we saw on the six. But but I do see more kind of mobilized attention and effort to take this seriously than I have um, since I've at least, you know, certainly in, in recent years.
1: All right, Peter, thanks for your time on that this morning.
8: And thanks for having me.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Now, organizers of the rally in support of Indian farmers in Surrey, that was supposed to happen on Saturday, are saying that RCMP overstepped when they shut the event down before it even got underway. RCMP, on the other hand, say they were not comfortable with what they saw unfolding, including the arrival of food trucks that made it seem to them like there were going to be people gathering outside of their vehicles. So what really happened here? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined by BC Civil Liberties Association Policy Director Megan McDermott and Supreet Singh, who is a 7th hour volunteer with the Farmers' Protest. Thanks to both of you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Simi. Great to be here. Sigpreet, let me start with you here. So, what was going on there? Like, were there food trucks? Was there going to be people getting out of their vehicles and mingling?
9: Simi, there were no food trucks. We have no idea where where this is coming from. There was not a single food truck that arrived on site. Um, With regards to public health, I can tell you that public health was our number one concern going into this. And we had volunteers set up to ensure that everyone remains in their vehicles. This was a drive-in protest. And uh, there was a mic to be set up where scheduled individuals would have a chance to speak regarding the farmers that are protesting. And individuals attending the event from the safety of their vehicles would be streaming live from a radio station. So that was our number one priority. And uh, the volunteers were in place to ensure that people remain in their vehicles. There were no food trucks. There were 20 people scheduled to speak, out of which four of them had various forms of artistic uh, expression, including music and poetry.
1: Okay, that was the concern, right? That was the other thing that police had said was they felt that there was music and events being set up.
9: Mm-hmm. And look, the world's largest protest is happening in Delhi right now, and it's driven by the arts. I don't know if you've seen the images, but there's music, there's dance, there's all this stuff happening. And so, you know, what defines the protest is also, you know, that's a discussion to be had with the RCMP. But what I can tell you with regards to public health, that was number one priority going into this protest.
1: Okay, so Megan, what do you think then about what happened here, the RCMP shutting down this protest?
10: Yeah, it seems um, obviously really heavy-handed to us at the BCCLA uh, our rights to protest, to express about things, particularly around political issues, are very, very strong under our Constitution, and um, courts have really protected us in those rights. So what that means is that the government has to have a very good reason um, to shut down political expression, and in this case, um, listening to what Preet's talking about, um, it. A lot of planning went into it. It was going to be, um, you know, it wasn't going to be a risk from the health perspective. Um, These events are allowed under, even under our public health emergency right now. we've seen other kind of protests where people aren't even in cars being allowed to go on, which really uh, makes us suspicious and skeptical of the arguments being put forward by the RCMP, let alone um, being alarmed by um, the allegations that they're, that they're actually just lying. They're lying to the public possibly right now um, to, um, to defend um, their behavior that was, I think, pretty unjust. I mean, to, to issue a ticket for over $2,000 to somebody who's not even an organizer um, when there hasn't even been any non-compliance yet. Yeah. Um, so, it, Preet, what it, was
1: the deal with that, with that ticket? Who was this person then who got the ticket?
9: Um, it was, uh, an, an, another, say, was another volunteer that received the ticket. Uh, that's about as much as I know. And other than showing up uh, to, to, to volunteer and attend the protest. Nothing further had, had happened at that point.
1: So, where does this leave the relationship with RCMP? I mean, will there be other protests? And what is going to be different next time in terms of that communication?
9: To me, we'll, look, there's, there's gonna, there has to be more protest. We have to amplify the voices of the protesters in Delhi, especially up, uh, leading up to India's Republic Day on January 26th. Uh, we're trying to ensure the safety of the farmers there um, so the government doesn't come down uh, uh, violently on their peaceful protests. So, yes, there will be more events going forward. Um, and like I said, like public health will be a number one concern. Uh, and the RCMP will, will continue to reach out as we did leading up to this protest. Uh, the information was provided um, and the uh, in, w- with regards to what the public health plan was, the RCMP on-site um, did not uh, ask for an on-site plan, and when asked to communicate any health-related concerns days before the protest, they didn't offer any. All right. But, yeah, I mean, we're going to continue to communicate with everyone involved, and we urge the City of Surrey, perhaps they should step in and provide a line of communication um, if if that's going to help resolve this
1: yeah megan what would you suggest the rcmp in the city of surrey do right now
10: oh dear um i gosh it, it's hard to say what i would say though is that you don't need permission um, in advance to have a protest um while, you know it's great to have open communication Um, so that um, the public institutions understand what's going on. Um, You don't need to get permission in advance. You don't need their approval in advance um, from the police. I could go out right now and march down the street um, and have a protest. And um, So just this idea that you need to, if you don't collaborate properly with police and they might clamp down on you, I think is a really dangerous and disturbing one. Um Of course, right now, um, with concerns being high with public health and safety issues, um, I, I think um, it makes sense when something is occurring, mm-hmm. um, if there is an organizer, um, and if there is a non-compliance actually occurring, um, and if the organizer or, or whoever's doing the non-compliance. I know that sounds so abstract, Um, but then you take care of it at that actual time, right? Rather than just clamp down on what might occur um, based on a whole bunch of assumptions. That's not the way the law works and and courts won't look um, to this um,
2: with favor.
1: All right, Listen. thanks to both of you for being with us this morning.
2: Thank you for having for having
1: us.